It was our fifth largest export earner, bringing in billions of dollars every year. But COVID-19 has thrown the international education sector into disarray and there will be no quick fix. The $5 billion foreign student industry is facing a massive downturn, with as many as half of this year's enrolments now in doubt. I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail... They have been earning a lot of extra income over a long period of time, and, and prudent management would suggest that maybe some of that should have been kept in reserve um, when times are tough. Have some of our secondary schools become too reliant on international riches, and do they need to bring it back to basics? Steve Hargraves is the president of the Auckland Secondary Principals Association and principal of Maclean's College, a co-ed school with about 2,500 students in Auckland's Bucklands Beach. Worked um, at Otahu College and then Maclean's, became a DP at Maclean's, became a principal at Wesley College and uh, now I'm a principal at Maclean's College. I'm from Christchurch, so assume that I know nothing about the Auckland high schools. Tell me a bit about Wesley and Maclean's and the contrast between those two schools. Yeah, they're very different schools. Um, I guess on the surface of it they are. I mean, we're still all about working for students and hoping, uh, helping them achieve their dreams and aspirations. But, OK, uh, Wesley um, Boarding School, a Methodist school, so it's the only Methodist school in New Zealand. Uh, when I arrived, the role was about 300, um, largely Māori and Pacifica. In fact, Tongan was the biggest uh, group of students represented on the role. About two-thirds of the students boarded, and a lot of staff lived on site, on the uh, the site at um, Pairata, just north of Pukekohe. Uh, Maclean's College, on the other hand, uh, we've got 2,650 students on the roll. The biggest group is Chinese. We have um, 300, just over, um, fee-paying international students. And it's a decile nine school, whereas Wesley was decile one. So, yeah, quite a contrast. What is the difference in terms of resourcing and the abilities in terms of what you can and sort of can't offer to students? Yeah, in a low decile school, you face a lot of challenges because you can't just go to the community and put your hand out and say you're going to fund a camp or a field trip. Um, or even uniforms for that matter sometimes. Um, at Wesley we're a little different because there were, was a, a trust um, linked to the Methodist Church and the schools able to access a bit of funding that way. Um, but generally you're really um, restricted to what the ministry provides. Now in the high decile schools you can often go to your community and ask for a, a donation and quite often they'll be willing to provide that. Um, and then a lot of schools also recruit international students as McLean's does. Before we get into the economics of international students, it might be helpful to explain how state schools are actually funded in New Zealand, maybe using Maclean's as an example. The majority of the money comes from the government, and it has three strands. First is teacher salaries. That's the biggest expenditure, and it's paid directly by the Ministry of Education through Novapay. Maclean's employs a couple of hundred teachers. In 2018, this cost them about 11 million bucks. Then there's property funding. This is to help upgrade and modernise school buildings. Think converting old, mid-20th century classrooms into modern learning environments. This varies a lot year to year, depends on the sorts of projects you need to do. In 2018, Maclean's received just over $2 million for this. And finally, there's the school operations budget. This is the money schools can pretty much choose to spend how they like. It might be offering extra scholarships, upgrading IT systems or facilities, funding sports teams, that sort of stuff. 
In 2018, McLean's got about $3.7 million for operations. Now this is the budget schools can top up. And as Steve Hargraves explains, there are a bunch of ways you can do that. More established schools probably have a foundation, like a development trust, and they will tap into their past student network. Um, You can go to um, charity gaming trusts and seek funding that way. Um, You can always go for sponsorship, um, the parent donation. Um, If you manage to put some money away and have a surplus from time to time, then you can earn a little bit of investment income on your reserves, Mm -hmm. Um, and then international students. And then international students recruited by overseas agents employed by schools and sold a vision of New Zealand through glossy videos like this one on the Maclean's website. Auckland, New Zealand Aotearoa, city of sales and home to Maclean's College. International students are encouraged to stay with local families where they can experience life in New Zealand firsthand while improving their English language skills and experiencing true cultural immersion. Hi, I'm Bruna and I'm from Brazil. My name is Caitlin and I'm from Vietnam. Hi, my name is Nooch and I'm from Thailand. My name's Moses Yoweni. I'm from Papua, Indonesia. My name is Mark Lee and I'm from China, Beijing. I've been here for roughly two years and I enjoy every single hour, every single day of my life here. Recently, international students have become a crucial part of many schools' business models. We have 320 full-time equivalent international students this year, and that's probably the largest total of any state school in New Zealand. And how much does that bring in? In gross revenue terms, $5 million. $5 million, okay. So that's about 20 grand per student per year. Yes, our tuition fee is... Yeah, just on $20,000, $19,500. a big, that's like a, that's like a third of the amount that you get from the government that comes from international students. Yeah, in our operations grant terms, we look to raise um, the same as what the government gives us. So, you know, just before said that our ops grant is about $4 million, we look to raise that ourselves again um, to run the school. So that's made up of those three things, international students, parent donations and then a little bit of investment income from money we've salted away in previous years. What does that allow you to do? A lot of things that uh, wouldn't happen otherwise. Look, I'll just maybe go back one step. That's not unusual for a school to provide about half of its own funding. Mm -hmm. I know there's lots of other schools, certainly the colleagues I've got in Auckland, who will be looking to match what the government provides uh, with their own locally raised funds for the operations grant. Yeah, now what does it do for us? Um, we employ extra guidance counsellors, extra teachers' aides, um, another sports coordinator. Um, we increase our IT grant, um, yeah, sports equipment. Um, we have managed to build a, an artificial turf, and all of these things are over and above, and of course become available to all of the students in the school. Now, it isn't really a level playing field. International students are helping many Auckland schools make millions of dollars, much more than similar schools in other parts of the country. International students bring in more than $170 million a year for secondary schools nationwide. The trouble is that cash cow could be on its way to the abattoir. While the Education Minister Chris Hipkins said in early May that the government wanted international students to come back as soon as possible, 
That's something that we're working through with the sector. It is possible that we'll be able to put a quarantine arrangement in place for international students coming into New Zealand that sees them quarantining for two weeks. Therefore, we know when they come uh, into the wider New Zealand society that they are COVID-free. And the National Party's also keen to reopen the border to students. Yesterday, the Finance Minister, Grant Robertson, said that would take some time. And as for schools that rely on that money... Yeah, we're in a bit of bother. This year, we are probably a little bit unique in that we rely heavily on the Chinese market for our international students, and most of those students got across the border in January and February and are with us for the year. So our budget is... You know, relatively stable for this year. We have had a few students head home and a few arrivals aren't now going to come in Term 2 and Term 3. But the pain is going to be felt in 2021. Mm. For other schools, however, who rely on the European market um, and a lot of short-term students, they expect students to arrive in Term 2 and Term 3 from you know South America and Europe. They won't arrive and now they have a real problem this year and it'll get worse again next year. I guess now what you want to get into, what does it mean for us, um, is going to mean budget cuts, which is going to lead to staff layoffs, pruning back what we can offer in terms of you know, renewal of sporting equipment, renewal of um, IT equipment. Um, we always contribute more to the maintenance of the school than what the government provides, so we're going to be deferring maintenance around the school. So it's almost like the government gives you half of the money that you need to run the way that you want to run and the rest of it is left up to the school. That's probably where the debate starts. I would say, yes, we need that money to run the school, certainly in the way our community expects it to run. There'll be others who say, well, you're doing things that you don't need to do. We could get by with fewer teacher aids. We could get by with less sports equipment. We could have older IT equipment. We didn't need to build an artificial turf. Um, but we certainly want to be able to provide those things because our students are going to benefit from all of those opportunities. And certainly teacher aides and guidance counsellors, we think, are pretty essential and are underfunded by the government. It's almost like introducing a business arm into schools. Is that a wrong characterisation? Like... No, it's not wrong at all. I mean, I think schools have to run like a business anyway. It's, I think it's very interesting that the Ministry of Education, or, or ERO for that matter, will um, you know, tolerate poor performance in a school over a period of time and give you opportunities to do better with the level of attainment with students. But if you go broke, there'll be somebody in there running your school overnight. Mm. You know, it's, a, it's a business, no doubt about it. We have to balance the books and we've got to manage the resourcing. Um, yeah, and now international students is a branch of that business. But it's not a branch of that business for everyone. Other schools have chosen to focus on their own operations. Andrew Basher is the principal of Buller High School on the west coast of the South Island. We made a decision quite some while ago to focus on our own community, our own school, um, rather than put that energy into international students. And so, and that hasn't changed, to be honest with you. We're, we're still focusing on, on our own um, grown students. Why did you make that decision? Well, at, at the time, to be honest, it was it was a purely an achievement-based um, decision. Our, our, our school was um, in need of improvement. Uh, we needed to raise achievement, but we also needed to raise the profile of our school, and uh, we wanted to give confidence to our parents that we could deliver a great job because our community was going through a real um, dramatic economic decline.
what sorts of things are you are you foregoing by not dipping your toe into that market? Obviously, there's money, but are there other more holistic things as well? Of, of course. Um, uh, we've had exchange students, um, often called freebies, but um, any time you have a student from a different culture that comes into your environment, it, it adds a richness to your to your classrooms and to your school. And it's not to, it's not just students; it's our teaching staff as well. Our, our teachers are more cosmopolitan than they've ever been, and, and it's fantastic because it, what it does is it exposes our students to uh, different cultures, different beliefs, different ideas, and uh, makes them a more uh, worldly citizens. So it, it does provide a lot of flavour to your school. That um, you know, as you say, it's not it's not a, about the money. It's actually it's about the the cultural experience. But it also sort of is about money, like. If certain schools, often in certain deciles or suburbs, can supplement their state funding with millions of dollars, doesn't that create a bit of a two-tier system? Well, it's not just about the decile, and sometimes it's also about location. There are some locations where uh, students want to go and some locations where maybe they're not so keen to go. Um, it's pretty obvious that you know international students bring in a lot of money, which is why there's so much discussion about it. You know, obviously, some of that money needs to be there because it, it offsets staffing costs and resource costs, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no doubt about it that schools do do generate a lot of income. And of course, there is, a, you know, the more the more students you have, the more income you have, and uh, that does provide opportunities not only for those students but all of your local students as well. So um, we certainly couldn't compete uh, with opportunities um, based around money. Um, with those schools, those bigger schools, with with a hundred international students, that uh, their opportunities are amazing, and uh, they'll probably be hurting the most because it's become an expectation. Yeah, and those schools are hurting a lot. You know, many of them are, are pleading poverty at this stage because they've gotten used to working on a a Porsche budget, and all of a sudden the Holden Commodore is back in the driveway. <laughs> Do you have much sympathy for schools in that position? I understand their position because uh, we had the same discussion at our own school that we would ring fence any international income if we went that way. But um, when you have that international income over a period of time, four, five, six, seven years or beyond, um, it does become part of the furniture and, and you do start planning for it. You do start expecting to have it. So I can understand certainly the hurt from those schools and they've been able to provide bountiful opportunities for all of their students based on that income. Um, so I do have some sympathy for them because there is some expectation and there's also some permanent staff, no doubt, they've employed to cater for those students. However, they have been earning a lot of extra income over a long period of time and, and prudent management would suggest that maybe some of that should have been kept in reserve um, when times are tough. The example you gave of 200 students, that's, that's quite a large catchment of international students and that's quite a large hole in your pocket um, when they don't arrive. You mentioned before this sort of funding goes into providing the sorts of activities and the sorts of operational stuff that the community expects. Can you just elaborate a bit on that? What, what, What do you mean by what the community expects? Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, we're next door to St Kent's and obviously they are a private school, high-performing school, um, and our parents will regularly drive past, I guess, or see in the local paper what the St Kent's um, students are up to, and they just think, well, this is what school's about, and these are the opportunities that you can 
enjoy um, and therefore when we put on a school production it can't just be um, you know slapdash it's got to have good lighting good sound so we've got to contract out folks to come in and set all that up for us we've got to have you know a well prepared orchestra with all of the equipment that's provided and and so on now obviously if we didn't provide it everybody would still survive um, but I think there would be just a level of dissatisfaction with what the school was doing. That's interesting because mm. it's almost like a, an educational keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, there is probably an element of that. But yep. that is a reality of being a public school in an affluent area. It is. I mean, there's no doubt that we will be compared to our neighbouring schools, you know, be it Pakuranga College or Botany Downs or Howitt College. I mean, you know, the community all mixes in together, you know, down at uh, the, the sporting club or whatever, and they'll be talking about what is available at their students, their sons or daughters' school, and will be compared. I think the obvious ones are the extracurricular program. You know, we offer everything from, you know, your robotics and underwater hockey and, and you know, what's provided that way. But, um, you know, provision for students' well-being and, you know, the, the counselling that we can provide. Um, I mean, schools now, we're, we're feeding students and clothing students. Um, you know, there's there's a lot more expected of schools, I think, right across the board. You alluded to this before as to whether the sorts of activities that you're talking about that you can do when you have a large amount of international student money coming in are actually part of the remit of a school. Is that a fair question to ask, do you think? Yes, it is. And I think that we are using international student money to provide the essentials. It's not just over and above. This isn't just cream that allows us to all you know, equip the kids with all sorts of, um, you know, fancy technology or, you know, we're not all travelling to Europe um, for school trips or anything like that. Quite the opposite. You know, we are making sure that every student, you know, gets an, an opportunity to, to do the basics. You know, if you're a student and you need learning support and we're only funded for five teacher aides, mm. well, now the school can provide another group of teacher aides on top of that so we can provide another four teacher aides over and above what the government provides us i mean that, to me that's that's a basic that's that's not a luxury mm. likewise with our guidance counselors i mean the the expectation on schools now to cater for um you know counseling services for schools really grown and we get two point something counselors funded whereas we employ five all right so again we're now able to better take care of the students in school and you know help help them be ready to learn. It's essential. Do you think that there needs to be, in the aftermath of COVID, perhaps uh, like a recalibration of expectations in terms of what sorts of services schools should prioritise and offer? That's a really good question. I would say that what needs to happen is probably, you know, we're focused on attainment and achievement and and pushing out really good grades for students. The recalibration probably needs to be um, you know what's really important for the students this year, and it might not be um, getting excellence for all of your um, NCEA standards. It's probably more about how are you equipped to cope with life in general. Are you feeling comfortable, positive? Um, you know, have you got a good plan worked out for next year, and will you be able to get enough credits to head in that direction? I think that's what needs to change: is the purpose of school right now just we need to be making sure that we're aware of you know some of the mental health needs and the anxiety um you know, just the readjustment into school life because i guess uh, one way of looking at this is that 
relying so heavily on fee-paying international students is kind of similar to relying really heavily as a country on tourism as an industry. Because, I mean, in a sense, the two things are kind of analogous, right? They are. There could be an argument put forward with some merit that state-funded schools shouldn't have to rely on a tenuous business like tourism in order to carry out their functions. I agree. Now, the counter-argument would be, well, we, we can survive without it, and we would, and it would be a very vanilla type of offering um, that would be providing for our students. Um, and, and, you know, good Kiwi kids would be missing out on opportunities if we didn't have the international students. You're right, it's a big risk for us to, you know, our overheads, our fixed costs now have incorporated a whole lot of things that are dependent on international student income. Is that a mistake? Well, possibly. I guess time will tell whether we can work our way through this or not. What we do have is um, a, a little period of time now where we can plan a way through it. Um, natural attrition, you know, rework of our um, budget and our spending plan to hopefully make you know get through this in a in a sound way. The revenue from international students is not the cherry on top of the cake. But presumably, in an ideal world, it would be the cherry on top of the cake. Look, if I was um, idealistic, I'd say, yes, we do need to be funded better. Uh, I mean, you're not going to say that you don't need to, though, right? Yeah. No, no, that's right. <laughs> but when half of your operational funding, ideally, is coming from this vulnerable market... That speaks to something pretty deep and institutional. I mean, you're talking about, what, five to six million bikes? Yes, we are. We're talking millions of dollars that we are putting towards yeah, running our school. And we've got to source that money every year. Yeah, it puts a lot of strain on the, the school to go out and source that income. So what does it mean? It means, yeah, that schools aren't funded adequately. Now, I don't think there's a principal in the country would argue with that, whether they're decile one or, or decile ten. Um... Yeah, we are under pressure for every every cent mm. to account for it and spend it wisely. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile phone every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Rangi Poek and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Steve Hargraves and Andrew Basher. Mate wa. Mm-hmm.